0: to take everything that is said this morning and go home this afternoon or sometime this week and look it up in the scriptures and see if we're getting it correctly. Now we're still at two o'clock today as we conclude our study of sin, a man's fall into sin. And someone might ask, well, why are we taking so much time on one o'clock creation and two o'clock sin? And the reason is if you don't get these things right, then everything that comes thereafter, the incarnation, the atonement, and so forth, is going to be on weak ground. So we want to be sure that we have a solid scriptural view of God's creation and then God's creation of man in his image and then man's fall into sin. Now, last Sunday, we talked about the reformers, men like Martin Luther and John Knox and John Calvin who came along to say what had been said, they felt in the Scripture, but had been hidden for some time, at least from the people. And they said that man is dead in his transgressions and sins. There's nothing that he can do for himself. The Holy Spirit of God must quicken him. And we looked at the view then, the Arminian view that came along after that in 1604, that said that man is not really dead, he's sick, and he's got some problems, but he will, if he will just choose to take the medicine, then he can be healed. And then we talked about the Pelagian view back in 431 AD that said, man, actually, is getting along pretty well. He had a bad example in Adam, but he had a good example in Christ. And if he would just choose to follow the good example, everything would be all right. Now, last Sunday, we talked about the effects of sin in a person's life. And this morning, we want to branch that out and take it in the aggregate as we think about the effect of sin on every person who ever lived. So we want to consider first the world's view of sin, which unfortunately has crept into the church. Here's a guy who was coming home from a costume party, and he went uh, happened to go by the bank, and he heard something. It was the money in the vault at the bank calling out to him. Hey, we're prisoners in here in this dark vault, and we don't like being in here. Please come in here and rescue us. And so he went into the bank and rescued the money. He just happened to have his mask from the party in his pocket. And he took the money, and of course he was caught. And then he said, oh, I have made a bad mistake. I promise I will never do it again. The money just wanted to be in circulation so we could stimulate the economy, so we could get the president reelected, or whatever the reasons uh, may have been. And so I was compelled to go in and take the money, and it was just a mistake. And I acknowledge that I have made a mistake. Now, if the mistake, if someone claims that they've made a mistake when they've sinned, usually that would be centered around wrong acts wrong things that you do, stealing or murder or vandalism or something that you do. But with this thinking, anger or lust or hatred usually would not qualify. It's not even given any thought. Pride is not even on the radar screen because the world is thinking, I had a right to be angry. If you'd been treated like that, you would be angry too. Lust, it's just a natural desire that God has built into us. What's wrong with that? Or the matter of hatred. If you have a reason to hate someone, then you can't help it. They treated you wrongly, and so you have this feeling toward them. Well, we want to find out if those excuses, the excuses that the world gives, would hold up. The excuse of having made a mistake. If people make mistakes when they sin, why do they make mistakes? Now, the world gives some answers. Lack of education. Our experience in life dynamics has been this. If you hate academics and you do poorly, you're probably going to get into some trouble. But that seems to me to say more about the student and the family than it does about the education. Now, we'll see that all of these things have influence on us but we can't claim that that is a reasonable excuse for my sin trauma i went in the post office and somebody butted in line in front of me and nobody did anything about it and i was kind of traumatized by the experience so i went out to a car and got my gun and cleaned out the post office that's kind of the way people think in our culture today but how about this one human weakness a a defect or a lack of something here is an article from crime stoppers and they list the 10 causes of crime here's number one weakness people are not bad by nature but sometimes simply too timid to resist the vicious demons that play on their weaknesses who do you think that would be the demons well let's find out humans are good by default but not everyone is made of steel so as to defend themselves against the demonic forces. Destructive emotions, detrimental attitudes. Those are the demons. We all get attacked by those faulty, ethereal goblins of our minds and hearts, but most of us succeed to resist them. Well, here's another excuse. Exploitation by society. Society has failed to give you a high-paying job. So you maybe need to go down and occupy City Hall, and if they won't do anything, just burn the place down. You probably won't be charged with any crime if you can prove that you have been exploited by society, and if there are enough of you who join in with you in that. Then another one that we mentioned, a bad example. Adam set a bad example. Christ set a good example. Maybe there are bad examples in your neighborhood. Now let's look and see what the Scripture has to say about those kind of excuses. We're not suggesting here that there's any excuse for sin, but we're examining these excuses that the world gives in the light of Scripture. First one, lack of education. 1 Corinthians one, twenty six and 27. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. A lack of humanistic education might be an advantage to you because Jeremiah tells us in chapter 10, learn not the way of the heathen. We're not saying don't get an education. We're saying check out the teacher and the content that will be taught. When you go to any school, college, whatever, there are two educations. One is the education that the institution is giving, and the other is the education that you get, which includes peer pressure, drug pushers, prostitutes, whatever there may be present there. So be very careful with the education that you get, young people. Learn not the way of the heathen. Trauma, Hebrews 11, 36-39. Some Christians in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame of Faith faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith. The trauma of persecution revealed the faith that they had. Human weakness. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 Corinthians 11. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Exploitation by society. Usually, the claim of exploitation means that I didn't get something that I deserved, or something that was mine was taken from me, or both. Paul says in Philippians 3 What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now, certainly, we would work. To help those who are exploited, like the unborn. But exploitation is no excuse for my sin. Bad examples from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 18. But suppose this son has a son who sees all the sins his father commits. And though he sees them, he does not do such things. He will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live. I remember a family in which the father was an alcoholic and just an abusive fellow. His sons were some of the finest guys that I knew at that time. They were very courteous, well-behaved, put their trust in the Lord. You don't have to follow a bad example. Now, as we said, these things may have a negative influence in your life, and we want to work to alleviate whatever influence that may, may be, but they are no excuse for sin. Here is the scriptural view of sin. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. They break God's law, not just the laws of the land. They're breaking God's law. And remember Christ's summary of the law. Love God and love others. According to John Calvin, sin is not being or doing what God requires. Now, the being would be completely ignored if you see sin as wrong acts. Just things that you do that are wrong. The stealing and murder and whatever it might be. But we understand, I think I understand pretty well, that there are some hidden things down inside. And I've been asked, well, should you discipline a child for attitude? Well, I guess so. That's where it all comes from. Attitude. Because all the things that proceed out of the mouth and all the things that we do come from the heart. So it's what's going on in the heart that counts. And we need to speak to the heart and not just a list of rules. You do these things, you'll be all right. Let's look now at the effects of the fall. Here is a figure who represents man. And today we want this to represent all people. Every man, woman, child, everyone who ever lived. Before the fall, man was sinless. Adam was able to sin. Adam was able not to sin. But after the fall, Adam acting as our representative, something happened. Before the fall, without sin, after the fall, man was polluted by sin. Now, by virtue of God's common grace, man, men can still do some good. You could see the Pharisees who helped the poor, rang a little bell when they gave some money to the poor people so everybody could know. I don't know what their motives may have been, if their motives were right, probably pride or something of that nature as we read about them from the New Testament. And yet they accomplished some religious good, but it didn't count anything as spiritual good with God because Jesus said, you're sons of your father, the devil. The pollution of sin, Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Now, when we read that, we think of some guy with an evil conspiracy in his heart to blow up the whole world. And he's just running around looking to do evil. But don't forget what we learned last week. The pollution extends to every part of man, the body, the mind, the will. It doesn't mean that you're as evil as you could be. You could look pretty good on the outside, but you could have some evil continuously going on in your heart. So remember those sins of pride and things like that. Another verse, Psalms 14.3. Paul quotes this verse in Romans 3 in the New Testament. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is not one who does good, not even one. Well, they may do some civil good or moral good, but they don't do spiritual God a spiritual good that would atone for them before a holy God. Psalm 51 5, David makes it clear, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He's not talking about anything sinful about the conception, he's talking about himself, because as you read the entire chapter of Psalm 51, he is expressing his sorrow for his sin. Another verse from Psalm 58 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. It looks like the Bible is saying that we are born with a sin nature. And we're going to have to correct that later on if we're going to be able to live the life that God has called us to live. New Testament, Romans 7:18, Paul says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. Well, not only is man polluted by sin, man is under the power of sin. Everybody's under the power of something. You're either under the power of Christ or you're under the power of sin. Romans 7, 5, For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. Now, he's not saying God's law arouses the sinful passions, but have you ever been forbidden of something that you should do? Well, it kind of excites a desire to try it out, doesn't it? Especially sometimes for young people. So God's holy law doesn't cause sinful passions. It defines sinful passions. But when someone forbids us from doing something, we have a tendency to want to try that out like Eve and Adam did in the garden. And then Romans 8, 8, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Well, it seems that man's entire being is polluted by sin, not as evil as he could be. He is under the power of sin, but he is also under the guilt of sin, the guilt of breaking God's law. Leviticus 5.17, if a person sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though he does not know it, he is guilty and will be held responsible. Ignorance is no excuse. New Testament, James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Now, I'm not suggesting that every sin has exactly the same temporal consequence. Any sin that you do, fear, pride, anxiety, any sin would be breaking God's law. But if you went into the pack-a-sack and lied about your age, that would be a little different from going in with a gun, an armed robbery, or shooting someone. So we're just saying that any sin that you commit makes you guilty. Now, here's something that is very unpopular in our day today. Under the wrath of God. A biblical concept, Ephesians 2, 1, For as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the Spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them, at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following the desires and thoughts its desires and thoughts like the rest we were by nature objects of wrath and then another verse from Romans 2 verse 5 but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds so here's what's happening to man after the fall of sin man is polluted in his entire being body mind will sin controls our emotions thoughts and decisions we are getting to a remedy for this sin renders us guilty before god and sin subjects us to the wrath of God. Okay? What can we do? This is a pretty bad predicament here. What can we do to cleanse the pollution, break the control, be pronounced not guilty, escape God's wrath? We need to get down to the heart of the problem. What is the core of sin? Is it lust? Lust? It is, is it idolatry? Is it covetousness? Is it pride? No. What is it? Hebrews 11.6 And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 3.12 See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Romans 14.23 Everything that does not come from faith is sin. That's pretty clear. The core of sin is unbelief. Back in Genesis, we looked at last Sunday, He, the serpent, said to the woman, Did God really say? And He causes her to doubt. And at the moment that we doubt, we begin to fall into all kinds of sin. Now, God has some things to say about murder, about lust. Even in the New Testament, we studied those in the Beatitudes. And when we don't believe God, or we push that out of our conscious thought pattern, then we are susceptible to the temptations of the devil. Well, if unbelief is the core of sin, what is the core of righteousness? Romans 1.17, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. For it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now, we know that Christ is the fulfillment and the completion of the law. He's not saying he's tossing the law out the window and I can be lawless now. In the New Testament, there are at least 49 commands of Christ that he gives, the things that we ought to do if we're going to follow him. And we're told if we love Christ, we will obey his commands. So we're not saying that Christ is just um, thrown out the law. What has happened here is that I'm no longer under the indictment of the law as a penalty for my sin. That position of guilt has been removed. I should say that condition of guilt has been removed. So what would it be? What is the core of righteousness? Faith. John 6:29. Jesus answered, the work of God is this to believe in the one He has sent. Now, how can we cleanse the pollution that is ongoing? How can we break the control of sin? How can we be pronounced not guilty, which happens at a moment of time? And how can we escape God's wrath? Here it is, John three seventeen. We read it earlier. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn but to save, that is to heal, to preserve, to be made whole, to save the world through Him. Verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. What does it mean to believe? Let me read to you what Dr. Albert Barnes has written because I think it's a good summary of what it means to believe. It's not just intellectual belief. It's not just some temporary belief that I come to. But listen to this. He that believes, that is, he that believes in the gospel, is one who credits it to be true and acts as if it were true. This is the whole of faith. Man is a sinner. He should act on the belief of this truth and repent. There is a God. Man should believe it and fear Him and love Him and seek His favor. The Lord Jesus died to save Him. To have faith in Him is to believe that it is true and to act accordingly. That is, to trust Him, to rely upon Him, to love Him, to feel that we have no merit and to cast our all upon Him. There is a heaven and a hell. To believe this is to credit the account And to act as if it were true. To seek the one and avoid the other. We are to die. To believe this is to act as if it were so. To be in readiness for it. And to expect it daily. Even hourly. In one word, faith is feeling and acting as if there were a God, a Savior, a heaven, a hell. And if we were sinners, as if we were sinners and must die. And as if we deserved eternal death and we're in danger of it. And in view of all, casting our eternal interest on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. To do this is to be a Christian. Not to do it is to be an infidel. Now, he has a lot. I think he has covered all the bases there. We could say simply, to have faith in God is to believe that it's true and act upon it. Whoever claims to be in Christ must walk as Jesus walked. We're either going in that direction or we're going in another direction. If we're going in the direction of Christ, if we've committed ourselves to Him, we have forgiveness for sin. Now, what does unbelief... Excuse me, there's the rest of that verse in John 3, 18. He who has not believed uh, is condemned. What does unbelief produce Psalms 10:4 In his pride the wicked does not seek God in all his thoughts there is no room for God This is a sin that plagued Lucifer and I believe Adam and Eve and it is the sin of pride Then Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 19 having lost all sensitivity They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Not only pride, but sensuality. Proverbs 28.1 How many people would be guilty of this sin? The wicked man flees when no one pursues. Unbelief brings fear because we don't have faith that God is sovereign, that He can handle the situation. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's up there with some sins, because we naturally fear things, but that concern should drive us to the Lord. And I'm thinking of fear where moment after moment, day after day, we've got something there that's just that we're just afraid. What if this happens? Well, what if that doesn't happen? Well, what about this? And it drives us to anxiety. Hebrews 3.18 And to whom did God swear that they would never enter into His rest if not those who disobeyed? And then verse 19 So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Pride, fear, sensuality, disobedience surrounding a core of unbelief there are other things too but the scripture specifically mentions these what does faith produce Romans 12:3 do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith god has given you humility Very important in the Scripture. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 John 3 and verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Faith produces purity. Did I hear an amen back there? And then Proverbs twenty-eight one, The wicked man flees, though no one pursues, but... The righteous are as bold as a lion. boldness. James 2:22. We've taken this out of the living Bible, and then I have another reference for you. You see faith. you see faith. You see, you see he was trusting. this is uh, talking about Abraham. You see, he was trusting God so much that he was willing to do whatever God told him to. His faith was made complete by what he did, by his actions, by his good deeds. Now listen to Romans 16:26. But What has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. We carry the gospel message, hoping that all nations would come to the obedience of faith. So righteousness produces humility, boldness, purity, and obedience. Now let's compare the two in a little chart, and let's see where we stand. Unbelief on the one side, faith on the other. Unbelief produces pride. What's the opposite of pride? Humility. Unbelief, sensuality, faith, purity. Unbelief, fear, faith, boldness. Unbelief, disobedience. And faith, obedience. Now, the application. What can you do to increase your faith? I would suggest a couple of things nutrition, exercise, and rest. Now, we can think about that in terms of the body, but how about for the true person down inside the package? Nutrition is intake of the word. We live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Exercise is putting faith into action. We had an opportunity to do that some years ago. We were in the middle school. I had a little miniature church that Beach Approach had built for me. And I said, this year, we need to trust the Lord to supply a million dollars because it's going to cost that much to build a church facility if we want a church facility big enough for people to come and sit in. And uh, we went along there some months and nothing was happening. But all of a sudden, the auction came up over at the Fredericksburg Events Center. And everybody kind of got excited and they got involved. And the money came in, and we did not win the auction. How many would be glad we did not win the auction? We came pretty close, but we did not take it. But God supplied that faith is like a muscle, and we have to exercise that muscle not only as a church, but as individuals. Rest, my faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed, I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. In the midst of my trusting God, I've got to have rest or I'm going to be disturbed all the time. Or I'm going to be angry when things are not working out the way that I see would be best for them to work out. It's a sovereign God. He's on the throne. He knows what's best for us and we can rest in him. Now, we see a contrast in the Scripture, 2 Corinthians 6, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? That's a word that means worthless, a worthless fellow, sons of Belial. So let me ask you the question. Now, we're not saying you can't associate with these people. How do we lead them to Christ? But you see, if they are my example, if that's who I run with, so to speak, I've got to be very careful. But think with me for a moment in terms of this solution, this application. What in your life has produced the most faith? As you look back through the seasons of your life, what has produced the most faith? Prosperity or challenges? suffering? Who are the people who have been in your life who have helped you to produce faith? Because if they're not around anymore, if they're going on to the kingdom, you want to find some more just like them. And it may be hard to find, but you can do it. And then what are the disciplines? What are the godly disciplines in your life that have helped to produce The most faith. The Christian life, we're told in the New Testament, is like that of an athlete. It's like that of a soldier. It's like that of a farmer. These are guys who have to be very disciplined about what they do because they have a vision of the championship or the victory or the kingdom or whatever it might be. What is it in your life that has weakened your faith in the past? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now, we need to think about that carefully. Uh, We're both created in the image of God. The image is marred by sin. And the believer has the solution to repairing that image. But we have to be careful about how we are going to make the connection there. Here's a final puzzle. How can a sinner look like a saint? Now, I'm talking about an unbeliever. How can he look like a saint? You have to admit, he can look like a saint because a lot of men who are bound for eternity away from Christ look pretty good on the outside, how could that be? How can a sinner look like a saint? Well, let's think about it. Here's man, and we saw that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continuously. Now, it could be self. It could be pride. It could be covetousness. He could have a nice ministry smile on his face and have some things in his heart that would not be right. Uh, We're not talking about some the grossest of evil. But evil comes from man. One guy said, it makes me really feel good that we can ruin something. Howard Stern. I hope you don't even know who that is. That appeals to me for some dark, dark reason. What he was trying to do was to ruin a television show by having everybody that listened to his show call in and vote for the wrong person so obviously the wrong person uh so that he could twist that thing around and that made him feel good because man is darkened in his mind and he thinks of things that are the opposite of what they ought to be now obviously people are not as evil as they could be what keeps this evil in check and allows people to look good on the outside Even unbelievers. Civil good with the government down at the courthouse or wherever. Moral good, maybe even legislating laws that are in accordance with the Bible. Even religious good as we thought about the Pharisees. There are a lot of people who do religious good who don't seem to be on the team. And Christ warned that there would be many religious people at the last day who were not on his side. What keeps this evil in check? God says, I have kept you from sinning against me. Now, you can think of examples of that in the scripture. Abimelech, king of Gera, he was going to take up with Abraham's wife, Sarah. And God says, I've kept you from sinning against me. You can think of the many attempts of people to kill Christ before his time. You can think of Job in chapter 1 and chapter 2 where Satan wanted to do some things to Job, but he couldn't do anything without God's permission. You can look in Romans 13, where God restrains evil through government. He might say, well, hey, it's a bad government. They're doing the evil. Well, sometimes God uses government as judgment on a land, but He is in control. You can think of 2 Kings, where Sennacherib has come to destroy Jerusalem, and Hezekiah is praying. And God says... Don't worry about it. I'll take care of him and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night as a death angel comes through. You can think of the Jews and the Romans who attack the early church, but the church lives on triumphantly today. One final reminder about sin. Vice is a sin of so great a mean that to be hated has but to be seen. But seen too oft, familiar with its face, first we abhor, then endure, then embrace. What do you give your time to? What do you read? What do you watch? What do you think about? Is it leading you toward faith or is it produced? by those who are committed to unbelief and maybe taking some others down with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a remedy for sin, that you have decided that all of our sin would be borne by your Son, the Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming to this earth, teaching us how to live, Suffering as we suffer, yet without temptation. And then for going through that awful last week, even for the duration of your life, knowing that this was coming. But we thank you that you were willing to do that and to go to the cross. Lord, I pray that we might be a gospel loudspeaker to the world. And I pray that we might have boldness to reach out to those who are caught up in unbelief. And I ask, Lord, that uh, you would show us as we talk to various ones, the ones who have an interest, the ones who want to go on with you, that we might invest our time with them, discipling them, encouraging them, helping them to learn. And then, Lord, I pray that you would be with us today as we examine our own lives, as we think about the matter of sin and the core of sin, unbelief. Lord, help us to invest in those things that are going to produce faith and help us to invest time with those people who are going to lead us toward a stronger faith. And help us, Lord, to build the godly disciplines into our lives so that next year we would have stronger faith than this year and that we might continue to grow in faith all the days of our lives. Help us to get the exercise of our faith by putting into practice the things that you have called us to do. Lord, if there's someone here today who does not know you, who has never committed his or her life to you i pray that you might touch their heart through your spirit and show them their need Uh, lord thank you that you've invited us to come to you and you would forgive our sin and give us eternal life we ask these things in christ's name and for his sake amen